Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It helps us reach a larger audience and we really appreciate it. In early modern Europe, that's about 1500 to 1800, warfare changed dramatically, mostly due to the rise of gunpowder weapons. The introduction of artillery and shoulder arms to early modern European warfare had immediate consequences, such as changing fortress design, necessitating the switch from cavalry to infantry, and the building of large standing armies. This all sounds very boring. Mm, yeah. Well, <laughs> well, at least to it me. It's not boring at all. It's, well, at least, yeah, at least to me. But I'm, I'm sure we have some military gurus out there who are, like, totally salivating right I now. I really want... To ask if you know the difference between cavalry and infantry. Oh, yeah. Okay. I had, uh, horses. Ew, yes, Sarah, go f- yourself. Um, I want to know if you know the difference between... You obviously have not read my copy. Um, Correct. Uh, what's interesting to me, though, um, and hopefully to some of you, is the impact that these changes had on normal people's lives. The military revolution changed every detail of military service, provided a profession for sons who were not their father's heirs, sparked concerns over hygiene, fashion, taxation, um, necessitated the development of the modern nation-state as we know it, and most of all, it made Europe a small, insignificant region of the world into a hegemonic force for centuries to come. All this and more on today's episode. I'm Marissa Rhodes. And I'm Elizabeth Garner-Mazarek. And we are your historians for this episode of DIG. Just a quick note, this is not meant to be a comprehensive narrative of early modern military history or even of the military revolution itself. As social and cultural historians, we are required to go through pretty rigorous training, and that includes military history. But being the kind of historians we are, we tend to approach military history from a social and a cultural angle. So we're sorry, but we're not sorry. We hope you enjoy this episode as much as we do. So where does the story of the military revolution start? Uh, Where most good things start in Renaissance Italy. In 1494, Charles VIII of France invaded Italy. France was a rising star on the international scene. So Charles's army was outfitted with newfangled siege artillery. And by siege artillery, I mean basically giant cannons, which, using gunpowder, hurled large and heavy metal cannonballs into the sides of fortresses. In centuries past, the besieged suffered minimal damage, and they kind of spent their time evading army arrows and preventing troops from scaling their walls. Charles and his men, with their giant guns, leveled, like literally leveled, Naples in a day or two. Francesco Guicciardini wrote, quote, They, meaning the heavy artillery, were planted against the walls of a town with such speed, the space between the shots was so little, and the balls flew so quick and were impelled with such force that as much execution was done in a few hours as formerly in Italy, 
and the like number of days, end quote. As the news spread around the rest of Italy and around the rest of Europe, militaries everywhere realized they needed to step up their game. The Italians were well-suited to this task. 15th century Italy benefited from the birth of many art and architecture prodigies at this time. Think, you know, da Vinci, Bramante, Brunelleschi, Michelangelo, and so on. So it's not surprising that they were the ones who discovered that they could better protect themselves from the new artillery by changing the shape of their fortresses. They started building low, thick earthen walls surrounded by moats or ditches. They built angled bastions at the top of these thick walls. So basically just like big, I don't know, jutting rims around the top of them, Mm -hmm. uh, which protected the inhabitants of the fort from climbing invaders, shot, and cannon. And they started building polygonal buildings to allow a maximum defensive potential while also allowing the besieged to use their own firepower wisely and effectively. So they want to protect from cannon coming towards them, but they also want to be able to have their own artillery and shoot people down so does where that, they are. And one of the reasons is that is it gives them basically more walls to line up cannons? Yes. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. This new way of building, called the Italian style, spread to the rest of Europe quickly. These forts look like stars from an aerial view. So I'm sure many of you have seen yeah. um, pictures of kind of older castles, and they look like stars. Okay. Cool. As the 1500s wore on, fortress designs became increasingly elaborate and better engineered um, than anyone possibly could have imagined decades earlier. Yet they were still vulnerable. In 1519, Machiavelli wrote, quote, No wall exists, however thick, that artillery cannot destroy in a few days. So, believing wholeheartedly that firepower was the future, architects focused on protecting fortresses from heavy artillery while at the same time outfitting the castle with heavy artillery of its own. By 1544, the Netherlands, an example all the way on the other side of Europe, had 15 strongholds built in the Italian style, which housed over 1,000 pieces of heavy artillery. Um, It sounds impenetrable by anyone's standards, but not really. These improvements to fortress architecture were matched and surpassed by improvements in weaponry and skill on the part of the European armies. From 1500 to 1510, most European powers scrambled to acquire as much heavy artillery as possible. So as fortifications were redesigned and juiced up with their own impressive firepower, European monarchs were making parallel improvements to their armies. In centuries past, militaries had been little more than ragtag militias and mercenary forces assembled by the monarch's military advisors. They weren't terribly good at strategery, as George W. would say. (laughs) Strategery. Strategery. Um, And they rarely mounted sustained efforts. And most importantly, they weren't very large. The Battle of Agincourt in 1415 is arguably the most famous battle of all time. Um, It's the stuff... (laughs) It is. It is, okay. It really is. Everyone knows. Yeah. It's pretty famous. Easy America. Right. Um, (laughs) No, it really is. It's the stuff of legends um but english it is of legends but the english only had six thousand men fighting twelve thousand frenchmen these are tiny numbers for the most important battle of the hundred years war that was as large scale as wars were in europe at the time 
That 1494 French invasion of Italy that we mentioned earlier, Charles VIII had 18,000 men fighting for France. That's the number of men on both sides at Agincourt combined. But this was only the beginning. Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain commanded an army of 60,000 men in the 1490s. By the 1630s, the armies of Europe's leading powers numbered 150,000 strong. Louis XIV's armies swelled to almost 400,000 men in 1696. So these armies were just an entirely different beast. Muskets and infantrymen, and by infantrymen, I mean soldiers on foot with shouldered firearms. Sarah. Sarah. <laughs> Booyah. And... <laughs> Uh, had almost entirely replaced the bow and arrow and archers on the battlefield. Firearms required less skill than bow and arrow, opening up eligibility to any able-bodied man. So instead of having to have somebody who had skills, archery skills, really any old able-bodied man would do. Mm. And there's, we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Cavalry, which are, um, you know, the armored horses and horsemen that had composed most medieval militaries, were slowly replaced by infantry as well. Muskets tended to be about five feet long, and they fired 12 bore shot. The musket ball, uh, it would have weighed about one and a half ounces or 38 grams and was only accurate at a distance of 80 feet. So these aren't, you know... They were, uh, the guns themselves were 15 pounds, and that got heavy really quickly. You know, I mean, 15 pounds doesn't sound like a lot, but when you hold, like, I don't know, a 15-pound child after, like, a minute, you're like, what the Yeah, F? or hold, like, a 15-pound weight out, like a, right. like a bucket or something, you know? Right, like exactly. Your arms start shaking. Yeah. Right. Um, so these got heavy quickly, so troops found that they had to prop the muskets on these little gun rests uh, most of the time. And so you have this other thing that's, you know, you're right. staking into the ground and falling over, and it just sounds like a disaster. Um, it took a minimum of two minutes to load the barrel and ignite the gunpowder with a match. So, and that's like men who knew what they were doing. They could right. get this done in two minutes. And so these had to be, so you're still using gunpowder. It's just like the thing where you have like the, the stick and you're loading it and you're smashing it all down in there and all right. that kind of stuff. Okay. Yeah. Right. So I, ca- I can't even imagine like it was easy to light a match in like the outdoors or the rain or the wind and the chaos of war. Like I can barely hold a match or... Like striking right. I mean, a match now with like a kid yelling at me or striking something. Striking a match, like you know, on your back porch or something, is like the most impossible feat. <laughs> if you can imagine doing it in the midst of war, yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. Sounds crazy. Um. Okay. So, so compared, I guess, to today's long-range rifles or powerful semi-automatics, these were entirely inaccurate, unwieldy, and I don't know, sound pitifully weak uh, instruments compared to kind of what we think of as fire fire power or firearms today, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But they were numerous. So remember that masses of infantrymen um, lined up in these giant formations, just hurling this 12 war shot towards enemy lines. Um, So it was more of a bombardment style weapon at the time. Also remember too, that this was before the invention of antibiotics and before the effect of hygiene on wound healing was really understood. So even the smallest wound or graze or, you know, cut injury, whatever could be deadly to a soldier. Over the course of the 1510s, armies also became increasingly proficient at using heavy artillery in a bombardment style. 
volleying cannon at timed intervals, um, allowing for maximum destruction. So, you know, one, maybe every other cannon would would kind of um, shoot. And then, you know, 20 minutes later, the other ones that hadn't shot that first time, which, you know, so they would just sort of be volleying cannon uh, constantly. Yeah, okay. Uh, very quickly, muskets and artillery made medieval military formations obsolete. So medieval armies moved in squares, 50 men deep, armed with pikes. Mm-hmm. So if you can imagine these kind of giant squares of men with pikes, and they would clash with other squares of men with yeah. pikes, and they would kind of just be, you know, hurling each other at these walls of pikes, mm-hmm. right? It's and, and it was brutal. Um, we just saw a lot of that in the last, uh, last season of Game of Thrones. We saw a lot of that kind of fighting. Yeah. With pikes. Yeah. It's just um, these mass, massive men kind of making walls. Or, right. Yeah. yeah. And I think in, like, I don't know, in 300, it kind of reminds me of the phalanx. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole idea is, like, just so many pikes at once. You know, mm-hmm. there there isn't... There's nowhere to go. There's, yeah, there's nowhere yeah. to go except into a pike. Yeah. <laughs> right. So um, <clears throat> these giant squares of 50 men by 50 men... They realized really quickly that they were an easy target for enemy artillery. So over time, armies thinned out their lines. So if you just had a block of 50 men and you're just hurling cannons at them, right. you're taking out like half of them at once. Exactly. Like with bowling Especially balls. with them being so close together. Right. But, okay. Yeah. Yep. It's just like like bowling, bowling pin, like a bowling ball oh hitting God. bowling pins. They all just kind of go down. Um, and they realized, wow, this is not... Working. Um, Early modern armies began favoring mobility and flexibility over protection. So armor for both infantry and cavalry became less and less popular. So can you imagine like a heavily armored knight? Like if you think of like Monty Python or something like, you know, or jousting, if you picture jousting, how heavily armored they are, like functioning in a modern war environment, you know, like coming in and out of trenches from World War One. Like it's just ridiculous. (laughs) I'm thinking of uh, the bed knobs of brood sticks. You know, the... No. You, really? Oh, yeah. It's like one of my favorite movies. Okay, good. Sarah knows. But, not, but it, there's she's a witch, and so she gets this, like, museum of, of um, I don't know, medieval history. And so she, like, bewitches all of the artillery, and they're out there. And they're actually fighting World War II, World War One soldiers. Oh, my right? gosh. <laughs> oh, well, did they... Does it work? Because I would it imagine... It does, but that's because they're magic. Oh, yeah, And it's right. a Disney movie, so, you know. So, yeah, okay. They kick them in the butt, and they fall down or something. Right, <laughs> right. Exactly. But, like, when I picture... I picture him being like, you know, like turtles, like no, all knocked it's over. Like uh, Ralphie's brother, or you know, I can't get up. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what I picture. Yeah. So, um, you know, armies started realizing this was that wasn't going to work. Right. Um, so there were lots of changes underfoot when it came to just being able to be flexible. Uh, in addition to the loss of armor in battle, these new tactics and formations required skill and practice on the part of infantrymen and commanders. A ragtag bunch of militiamen and battle-hardened mercenaries called up every few years for an important campaign were not going to cut it anymore. Monarchs and their military heads began to realize that standing armies were necessary in the new environments in which their men were operating. Large standing armies allowed for one legion to be drilling and training in a safe space while others were on the battlefield. Standing armies were also more conducive to long-term military service. With forces convening and drilling at all times when they weren't fighting or on leave, a second or third son could make a career out of soldiering. 
Medieval soldiers tended to have day jobs, blacksmiths, bakers, butchers, miners, etc., um, and that, that they, you know, returned to after wartime. In the 1600s, as standing armies became standard, Europe saw the rise of a professional soldiering class. By the 1700s, the professional military man was an institution. Men served for their entire lives, like their fathers and their grandfathers. The Marquis de Lafayette, um, and he's famous for aiding the Patriots during the American Revolution, was one such soldier. He came from a long line of French commanders. He was an aristocrat, of course, um, and I only mention him because he's so incredibly famous and I feel like almost everybody knows who he is. He's in every single Revolutionary War movie that there is. <laughs> if your town has a Lafayette Square. Yeah, I mean, that's there you go. There you go. Um, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so he was an aristocrat. But there were plenty of average Joes who built careers and status out of nothing through lifelong service in the military. This era saw the creation of the first military academies and a huge body of literature about the art of war. As armies became larger and more disciplined, muskets improved as well. Over the course of the 1600s, the barrels became shorter by about a foot, and the matchlock, which is where the troop ignited the gunpowder with a match in years past, was replaced by a wheel lock. These new fancy muskets lit gunpowder without a match, using the friction from a wheel with little spokes around the edges. When the wheel spun, it generated a spark and lit the gunpowder mechanically, so infantrymen no longer had to do it by hand. I, I imagine that would save a lot of time yeah i would yeah. think so yeah and i mean now like a wheel lock barrel that's like i mean that's like ridiculously old-fashioned <laughs> to us but at the time this was like new cutting edge Absolute, technology yeah. we want to pause here for just a moment so we can hear a word from our sponsor We are so lucky to be sponsored by our alma mater and Elizabeth and Marissa's current school, the University at Buffalo History Department. We know you're a history nerd because you are listening to us. And UB History is offering you the perfect chance to deepen your historical knowledge even more with a master's in history. You can get your master's in history with three semesters full time plus one semester with a single three unit course. Classes are all once-a-week seminars with small class sizes and lots of one-on-one -on -one study with faculty who are leaders in their fields. Courses are all offered in the late afternoon, 4 p.m., and evening, 7 p.m. The department is intellectually stimulating, but also incredibly friendly and incredibly supportive, as I think all of us can testify. If you're interested in museum or nonprofit work, there is a public history concentration available that pairs historical training with business and nonprofit skills. You don't even have to take the GRE to apply. And as an added incentive, the department is currently offering $3,000 fellowships to the first 15 people to enroll for 2018. And additional opportunities for funding are also available to qualified students. So what are you waiting for, my friends? This is your chance. You can get more information about the program at history.buffalo.edu, or you can talk to me personally at 716-645-3433 or handley2 at buffalo.edu to talk about how to start an application. I hope that some of you will apply. Back to the show. Back to the show. 
handheld firepower became more elaborate and effective throughout the 1500s with the arquebus, which is um, a large, powerful shoulder weapon. It kind of looks like like a bazooka, but a super old-fashioned one. A bazooka with like an old-fashioned uh, record player Victrola yes. thing on the end. <laughs> right, like that. Yeah. Um, and much later on, around 1700, came the blunderbuss. And if you watch Pawn Stars, then you know exactly what those are, because they get blunderbusses all the time. Oh, okay, because I don't watch Pawn Stars. Yeah, so well, I, the, I remember the first time I saw a blunderbuss on there, this guy brought it in and said, oh, I have this old blunderbust. And, you know, the guy, he's such a dick. He was all like, um, actually, it's a blunderbuss. <laughs> and it, <laughs> oh, no, I like blunderbuss. It's not a blunderbuss. <laughs> Sounds like a fancy bra. I know, I think it's, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> right, exactly. So, yeah, but they're on there all the time. Okay. These changes happened unevenly, sometimes in quick spurts, and other times haltingly over the course of the 1500s and the 1600s. So just, you know, this wasn't an overnight thing, right? These are inventions like anything else, and they happen and they don't happen, and, you know, things take time. Um, but they did have massive implications for European demographics. Medieval battles were short and decisive, done before huge casualties could be incurred by either side. The military revolution changed that entirely. And we can see this most easily with siege warfare. Sieges started taking longer, becoming more strategic or strategicery. <laughs> And resulting in huge losses of life, like just giant, miserable stalemates. The religious wars following the Protestant Ref uh, Reformation tended to take this form. Um, they were exceedingly bloody and infuriatingly unproductive. So very little land would change hands, but tons of people were dying. The Siege of Ostend is a good example. So this happened from um, July 1601 to September of 1604. And this is referred to as the New Troy uh, by, you know, by people who are into stuff like that. The <laughs> I don't call it that. I call it that all yeah. the time. <laughs> right, you know, the New Troy. Um, the Catholic Spanish Netherlands were anxious to put down the Dutch Revolt, which was a Protestant revolt against Spanish Habsburg rule. Ostend was the last Protestant settlement in the Netherlands. Spain, bolstered by Austrian powers, laid siege to the Dutch-held garrison of Ostend. The Dutch flooded the surrounding land and were aided by the English. They received supplies and reinforcements despite Spanish efforts for three years. So the Spanish are trying to prevent them from getting supplies and new men, um, and they're failing. Mm -hmm. uh, in the end, the losses were massive compared to previous battles. So there was about 60,000 Spanish dead and 30,000 Anglo-Dutch dead. And we're not talking, these aren't like giant battles where, you know, uh, tons of land is taking place. This all happened at one place. Wow. That's grotesque. Mm -hmm. That's not even including the ill and the injured. I mean, this is not full casualties. These are just deaths. Right. Um, in previous centuries, entire armies tended not even to reach those kinds of right. numbers. And this is just the number who died. We need to know, like, why such massive casualties? One reason was the castle had just undergone an update with new ramparts, which are any defensive wall or bulge protecting a city or fortress, and new counterscarps, which are the outer wall of a ditch. Anglo-Dutch fortification and Spanish artillery were both so effective that neither side could make enough progress to declare a win. Constant combat, malnutrition, dehydration, and infectious disease killed thousands of men per month at Ostend. 
As this protracted conflict carried on for almost 40 months, new troops from burgeoning standing armies were brought in to replenish their casualties. Since combat was no longer decisive, Ostend and most other early modern conflicts became wars of attrition. One side wore down the other slowly, methodically, and painstakingly until their enemy ran out of food, ammunition, or men. This became the only way to, quote, win a war or a battle for that matter. Right. I mean, in, in years past, especially in the medieval period, there'd be kind of two small armies fighting each other. And at some point, there would be a time when it became very clear who which side was doing better. And they would declare, we won. And then they would all go back. Right. Um, this is not the same thing. This is... Attrition means wearing down. So this is just one side wearing down the other side until it's physically impossible to carry on war any longer. And something that this just makes me think of is it, it takes out the the glory of battle. You know, like the... Right. The, the I don't know, heroics or anything like right. that. Like, I mean, it almost makes you wonder, like, you know, why men would want to keep doing this because... I mean, there's no fun in it. There's no glory. It's, it's right. It sounds like it, utter hell. You even whether you win or you lose, it's a really miserable end. Right. You're either winning and you're so glad because you're so sick and dehydrated and malnourished and miserable that you can barely even celebrate, right. or you lose and you lose by you know sitting in a pile of your own feces inside of like a dungeon Ugh. somewhere. It's just you know it's all very, very dark. Yeah, <laughs> it does not sound fun. I don't know. That's that's such like a flippant way to well, say yeah. it. But, well, does war ever uh, sound fun? Yeah, but I mean, I, I, that's just you know, you, you, the valor of war is just it just seems like it's completely missing from that. Yes. Yeah. It does. Okay. Some people argue that. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So right. So these wars of attrition had incredibly complex logistics. Most rulers waging warfare in this period were forced to contend with them. So how do we clothe these massive armies? How do we provide them with rations? How do we move heavy artillery across forests and rivers? Where is a safe place to camp tens of thousands of men? How do we get them flints to make fires? How do we keep them clean, warm, dry, healthy, hydrated, informed? So, uh, in short, things got really complicated. And these are the things that rulers had never been required to address in the art of medieval warfare. Because we're talking, you know, short, decisive battles. Um, According to historian Jeffrey Parker, in the early stages of the military revolution, troops suffered, armies failed, and wars were lost because of logistical problems alone. Right. I mean, it sounds like the birth of bureaucracy. Like, you well, have yeah. to have... Oh, do you... I say that. Oh, I, I'm so sorry. Never mind. <laughs> okay, well, that's But you that's are what, totally right. That's where I got it from. So, <laughs> you are so smart. I'm so smart. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, uh, I guess over time, European states uh, seeking constant military success were forced to build complex state apparatuses that grew to be able to muster, feed, outfit, train, transport, and arm their enormous militaries. Um, So we may have the military revolution to thank for the origins of modern bureaucracy. Um, But there's also a controversy among historians over which of these came first. So was it military transformations or was it bureaucratic growth, right? Chicken or the egg kind of thing. Uh, So again, historian Jeffrey Parker, he argues that the military revolution forced changes in state organization through the messy process of solving logistical problems on the ground. Um, So for him, the military revolution came first, and the bureaucratic state came after it, right, to support the the militarization or the military revolution. 
Alternatively, Jeremy Black, a historian, uh, he argues that a developed state apparatus was a necessary precondition for the military growth. Um, so his argument uh, has some internal logic. Early modern armies consumed massive amounts of metal, which all needed to be mined and smelted. Troops needed to be recruited, outfitted, fed, housed, trained, and armed at mobilization. Ships needed to be commissioned, built, and armed. Also, somebody had to cut down the lumber, right? Mm -hmm. um, so these expenses were all required before war could even be waged. So it follows that a sophisticated state apparatus was required first in order to finance and organize the military effort. But, you know, that's that's too neat of an explanation, I think. And, and I definitely side with Parker on this one. Logistical problems were not always solved before fighting, and armies were not always paid, fed, and outfitted, and wars were not always financed before they had actually begun. Um, the reality on the ground was much less ideal. Historian John Brewer, I think, offers a solution to this problem of which came first. Not the chicken and egg, but, I don't know, the military revolution and the bureaucracy, at least. Mm -hmm. Um, he points out that growth was cumulative rather than wholesale, and that even during peacetime, states were actively financing and building their military machines in anticipation of the next conflict. Uh, military growth became part of a quotidian statecraft, so just an everyday thing. Um, there were people who worked their day-to-day -day lives just uh, working in civil service to grow the military. Mm -hmm. um, in this way, warfare and the state worked to grow each other simultaneously. Yeah. It seems more organic. Yeah. We're going to pause the story here and pick up where we left off in the second part of this episode. We hope you enjoyed this first part, and we hope that you tune in to part two. See you there. Son of a biscuit. Okay. I can't have a discussion with you. I don't know shit. I don't know shit. <laughs> Specialized area Welcome of study. Welcome to Dale. Dale. <laughs> Podcast. Oh my god. Bye, Daddy. He would say, specialized area of study at Lauder University. <laughs> 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 it would be such a shitty cut. <laughs>